Hello, and welcome back to Vox Popcast, the weekly pseudo-academic roundtable of pop culture analysis with drinking and swearing. My name is Christopher Maverick, but you can call me Mav, and I am once again here with... Nope, none of them here. None of the co-hosts are here. I am not in my regular recording space. I'm not wearing my headphones, so I'm wondering if I'm getting a weird echo or not. This would be weird. I'll find out in post. And maybe I fixed it, or maybe I was lazy, and you're just going to look here an echoey show. You know... I don't know because I haven't done it yet, but you know if you're listening right now. Anyway, where am I? I am in San Antonio, Texas. I am at the first live PCA, ACA conference in three years. Four, oh, God, I lost track. If you've listened to our show the last couple of years, you know that we've done our remote PCA conferences. I think there were two virtual ones in a row, and it was canceled the year before that. So it's been, I guess, four years since we had a live in-person conference. And we brought it back this year, only for various reasons. I'm the only person from Vox Pop who went this year. So I'm doing a very laid back recording of the fabled In Mavs Hotel Room on the last day of PCA recording, which we've done before. And I have returning guests. I have Matthew Brake, who's been on before. It's been a while. It's been a while, Matt. Welcome back. Thanks. Thanks for having me. <laughs> okay. And I have Ayani Cooper, who's been on. It's been a few months since you've been on. I don't remember if you were done when you were on last year. No, I wasn't. Okay. I wasn't, so. Dr. Ayani Cooper. <laughs> Happy to be back in fancy. Yeah. <laughs> I couldn't remember. Like, like, I don't think I was done when I was on your show last either. I think, I think if I remember right, when I was on your show last, I think I was on it. Literally, like two or three weeks, we recorded like two or three weeks before I was defending or something. And oh. I, I think it was like I wasn't a doctor, but I was fairly certain I was going to be one by the time the episode <laughs> aired. Was, I don't remember exactly how it worked out. It was something like that. And then it ended up airing like even later because like you guys were like really busy. Because I take forever. Yeah. No, the, the first one aired September 9th of 2022. And then the second one aired September 30th. Okay. So September 9th, I defended and I defended in August at some point yeah so so almost certainly we taped it before i defended oh yes but i knew that but i knew that i was about to you know what it's probably because i was also graduating yeah (laughs) really after that nothing was happening (laughs) so anyway so we are here in in san antonio it's weird because we haven't had a pca in a while and not everybody can come for a variety of reasons some related to just the pandemic some related to people not wanting to be in texas for many vast political reasons and some related to just people not wanting to spend money and everything there's a lot of reasons to not be here but i don't think either of you have well you've been to pca but you haven't presented here right i haven't i came one time in 2019 and only for a day Okay, so you, you yeah. visited for a day, and you've never been here before. Never, ever. This is my first time being here. So what do you think? This is like, <laughs> I think this is literally my 11th one. Um, <laughs> this is my favorite conference. PCA is in many ways responsible for this show. It was mm. like, a, it was a lot of, hey, the roundtables we do at PCA, can we just do one of those every week? Very frequent guest of the show, John Dorowski, who was the very first guest on this show, is not here today because the time that we picked to record, he had to leave. He was here earlier. He had. He's probably on a plane right now going back home. So that's why John's not here. But yeah, PCA is a lot of what Vox Pop is. Um, <laughs> and that was intentional. So, so what do you think? You guys been here for... <laughs> they're pointing each yeah, other. So... It's a Spider-Man I, meme. Yeah, right? Uh, you, you. No, you. <laughs> so I'm liking it a lot, honestly. The vibe is 
very laid back in a way that's nice. I packed like professional clothes and I was like, oh, I got to have my button downs and my nice cardigans. There were uh, so many people just hanging out in t-shirts yeah. and jeans. And I was like, well, dang, I don't feel overdressed, right? There are a lot of other people that are kind of doing the business casual thing, but like the vibe is very different from other conferences I've been to. But also I haven't been to an in-person conference in what four, four years four years the last in-person conference i went to was the international society of children's literature conference in stockholm sweden so it was oh, like a big fancy. one that it was, was very fancy. fancy it was a lot of fun and i had to dress like an adult and then every other conference i've been to like if i'm not presenting i'm in sweatpants right so that's a fun kind of adjustment of being back around people but like the sheer amount of different kinds of conversations that are happening at PCA is both exciting and overwhelming. Wanted to get to a professional wrestling panel this entire time, but I have not been able to because there's just so much other stuff happening. So I don't know. It's dope. I feel like I have to come again so that I can switch yeah. up the panels that I've been going to. Yeah, it's it for me. It's always weird. I spend a lot of time in the comics world. Uh, that's just I'm a comic scholar. It's part of what I do. I guess I'm technically a pop culture scholar, but like mm-hmm. I. But I have a large, you know, a lot of my work has been with comics, so that's where all my friends are. We would call that a specialization. There you go. (laughs) Yeah, sure. Let's go with that. But now, this is the first year that I am officially, I'm officially an area chair. So I'm the chair of the Eros and Pornography area. And I love how they put Eros first as though, like, it's to like, first off, no one would ever say that. Like, you would say erotica and pornography, and you'd probably say porn first, and it's mm. fine. And I don't I don't have a problem with it. I understand why they did it, because it's scary. Like, nobody wants to put on their CV. I went to a national conference and presented on pornography. And I was like, I do, and in fact, I'll be in charge. <laughs> I'm a crazy person. But I understand that, like, other people don't. So I'm now officially in charge of that. And I also, you know, I'll, I help out wherever I can in the comics area. And, you know, I'll sit on panels there, round tables, and I end up chairing the law and popular culture area, which I just I don't have any expertise there, but I'm fascinated by it. I like it. So that was real fun. And we just needed somebody to be in charge of it. So I was like, I will do this. So so that was fun. And I've gone to I went to some stuff, a bunch of stuff on education and pop culture because I have a job and it's actually relevant to my actual job (laughs) so i did that what else did you guys do a lot of what i did i went to yours which was philosophy and pop culture yeah i spent most of my time there even though comic studies was drawing me although (laughs) when i get into those two spaces it's very obvious to me that most of the people who do comic studies are english and english lit background Mm -hmm. teachers the question in fact one of the i think it was joe made a comment because i mentioned doing a joint panel next year between the two sections and Joe made the comment about you know these 18th century philosophers who would just speak and they assumed what they said was authoritative I was like Joe don't do this like it's, it was like oh okay I see this is that inter, interdisciplinary sniping <laughs> that's what's happening so I spent a lot of time there but I found yeah. the philosophy section that I spent sort of the first half with they had a night they their goal has been to build a nice little community there mm-hmm. I appreciated how in their business meeting they we're putting forward ideas for kind of some sort of social media presence that people could drop their calls for papers mm-hmm. and connected, looking at publishing opportunities. That would sort of be something that everyone who's a part of the sections and areas could be involved in looking at sort of a direction for people involved there where if they want to publish 
They did a big push for publishing with McFarlane. So Layla down at the table came and talked during the business meeting. Uh, and they talked about the different opportunities. Like there's actually a series on ethics and culture through McFarlane that Jim Acoppel is leading. So I thought that I appreciate that there, there was a strong sense of like building, building what the philosophy and pop culture section could be. And it made me mm-hmm. excited for that section in the future. And then, you know, now that my time there is over, I've been sneaking into the comics studies thing <laughs> and nerding out with everyone and, you know, going to the dinners and mm-hmm. nerding out with all the comics folks. But yeah, coming back this year, I mean, I, you know, I think the last time I was here was in DC and it was, I think it, it felt bigger then, which I think mm. it was by about triple size. Yeah. Oh, wow. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, we're, we are, I mean, and again, com- coming out of yeah. the pandemic and political issues mm-hmm. and, Money, yeah, um, money's a like, big issue. Like right yeah. now, like you know, there's a recession going on, yep. and so for Thank lots of reasons, expensive. like it's uh, we. I think they said there are. I don't want to say the number because I don't remember exactly how much, but like yeah, we're significantly down from where we were. DC, we did really well. DC was one of the bigger ones, but at its peak. There's, you know, there, most years we'll have 2,500 people. It can be up to 4,000, 3,000, 4,000. I think there's under 1,500 here, yeah. but it's in that area. So we're, so if it was 3,000 in, D, in DC, it's probably a little more. So at least twice as big, if not three times. Yeah. That, I mean, that makes sense. Again, like you said, coming off of the pandemic years, some questions about, you know, doing a hybrid model mm. come up. And of course, the politics in Texas play into it, yep. where yeah. that kept a lot of people from coming. Yep. But yeah, I mean, it's been great. I've enjoyed networking with folks, such a base with folks. It's been a good experience. What did you do? So your first time, and you've been floating around a lot. So. Oh, I floated everywhere. <laughs> so my first panel, I actually went to one of the vampire studies panels, because okay. I do monster studies. It's like my jam. So I was like, oh, I hang out with the vampire people. They seem cool. And that was so dope. So it was a round table. But literally what they did is they put us all in a circle and we kind of all sat and talked together mm-hmm. about teaching with vampires and okay. vampire publishing, which was really interesting. So that was cool. I went to a panel that was actually really good. It was the it's one of the first on the area list. It's like academic something, academic and collegiate life or something <laughs> like that. Right. Which I went to for work reason. But then the presentations were super, super interesting. And there ended up being like a lot of conversation about what it means to be a teaching faculty member, non-tenure track, and like... Yeah, like me. Yeah. My job. But it was super, super interesting kind of conversations. And then one of the people there was actually an admin for the English department who was also working on her PhD. Mm -hmm. She was talking about what it means to be like a staff scholar and how she tries to balance those identities, but also how she tries to find opportunities within the university while not feeling exactly included in scholarly spaces. So just like... A whole bunch of interesting mm-hmm. conversations. And then, I mean, I don't actually think I went to a lot of comics panels. <laughs> like, I just got a Google alert that was like, comics panel happening right now. Yeah. I was like, well, not going to that. Well, there's the they're, the one that they're doing now. Is they're showing it. It's, it's Blade, Blade, isn't it? Yeah, they're showing the movie Blade tonight, which I might go down for after we're done recording. Yeah. Catch up with, yeah, it's, a, it's just the... They're, the comics area is great because it's larger. Like, okay, so the porn area, I was supposed to have two panels, but like people canceled, so we only had one. So oh. that's so that was the entirety of the area this year. I thought it was excellent. Yeah, I, I had a as, great time as a presenter. I do not, yeah, do not, <laughs> I, thank you for coming in and doing it. I have no regrets. It was a strong section. Like, I think, yeah, I mean, philosophy had some strong sections, mm-hmm. and I think some of it can depend on like. The history of any particular area like mm. if you go to a religious studies conference like a 
lot of those have like really in-depth panels and strong panels because they're a part of conversations that have been happening for thousands of years. Right. Sure. Mm-hmm. But for having a thing on pornography where you only had one, like, like it was probably one of, of the non-philosophy ones. It was probably one of the, the I mean, part of the pun, one of the deeper panels. Yeah. Well, I also, I mean, I tried real hard too. <laughs> my first year doing it, I was like, ah, I want to make this work out. And I was, and then I, when I set everything up again, it was going to be two panels. And then we had people drop out, so I had to combine them. And so it's like, all right, I guess I'm only doing one. We only had four presenters left, and I was supposed to have eight at one mm. point. And then it went from eight to six, and then it went from six to four. And I'm like, okay, so I only get one one room now. And so I tried to make it work, but I was really happy with the abstracts. And I knew Ayani already. Yes. And I didn't know the other two people, but they had what sounded like interesting topics. It turned out they were. I had seen the one of the two people present, the one who had been here before. I saw her panel last year because I knew that I was probably going to be in charge of it this year. So I went to just, but I just went to observe. And I, I mean, obviously a lot of my work deals with erotica and comics all the time. So, like, I knew I was fine. <laughs> like, I wasn't worried about it, but it was just like, I want this to be, I wanted it to be, like, fun. And I wanted it to be, I guess, like, after this, I'll, I will play our, at least my Ayani and my, we'll, we'll put at the end of this episode, we will put our talks so that you can hear what we did. I won't, I won't make it a separate episode this week, but it will be there for you to listen. But I, I just wanted it to be fun. I always think that. The problem with academia, well, there's many problems with academia. <laughs> One problem with academia is that it's boring. And I say that as someone whose job it is. Mm. <laughs> what we do can be boring and intensely so. And I've always felt like it doesn't have to be. No, it's not. It even, I mean, it's sort of easy to say that when you're like, oh, and I'm a comic book scholar, so I'm going to talk about <laughs> Superman and Batman. But I don't think that's even, you know, I've done a lot of work with comics that no one's read. <laughs> like, like last year I presented on, I think it was last year I did Lost Girls, Alan Moore's comic Lost Girls, which is like, no, no one knows this book. Is that for the porn section or for the I comics? did it for the comic section with, I did it in the comic section. Not, but when I proposed it, I didn't know where it was going to be yet. So mm. it, it was a, one of those things where I was like, "Hey, we need to." I'll fit. I, I was. That's behind the scenes. I was trying to make topics that would fit in either area, mm. but also it just it works well with the kinds of work that I do. And also, Lost Girls was that was a, almost a dare. Like two years ago, there was it was mentioned in conversation. And somebody, we were talking about something, and I said, oh, like in Lost Girls. And they are like, yeah, but better. No one would ever actually do academic work with Lost Girls. And I was like, challenge oh, accepted. Challenge. <laughs> <laughs> and they're like, you don't have to really go. No, next year, I'm doing Lost Girls. And that's why you can go listen to that episode, and you can actually even watch it on YouTube. I don't know that I'm going to show... I don't know how to censor either of our things enough yeah. to get through the YouTube. I mean, I, I we'll see. We'll see. I don't know if they'll make YouTube this time. There's a lot of it. There was a lot of hand <laughs> penises in, yeah. in, in both of our in both of our presentations. Were, uh, I, I, we both had the same disclaimer, and I that was written in my notes. Yeah, like, like I was like, yeah. So there's going to be some not safe for work imagery here. You, this is a warning, but I mean, it's the pornography panel. Yeah. You knew what you were signing up for yeah. when you walked in that door. <laughs> it was funny. I was actually working on my PowerPoint last night with my brother and my spouse on FaceTime. And I just kind of muttered under my breath while working. I was like, oh, this is a lot of dicks. And <laughs> my brother started cracking up. He was like, oh, 
Okay. Well, there's that one panel too, where like the the demon I forget her name Esther Esther is like like holding both her penis and his penis in the one hand. Because like, I skimmed, I skimmed through the comic. And, uh-huh. Like you, you pass it around during the session as you're talking about it, which I thought was a great analysis of like all the like naming all the tropes, like like what we call the O face, what we call the sort of juicy penetration <laughs> image, like that. There are all these technical names for it. But yeah, that, I, when I flipped through it, I saw that one where it's just holding mm-hmm. it to you, like, all right. <laughs> I thought I actually did think about bringing the comics with me, and then I was just like, I don't want to bring. Like, I, like it, it was really like there are thirty three issues of Penthouse Comics plus I think seven or eight issues of Penthouse Men's Adventure Comics and three issues of Penthouse Max and one issue of Omni Comics, which is not pornographic, but they Penthouse owned Omni Magazine, the science fiction magazine. So, hmm. so I have the entire run. I have all of all of them. And I thought about bringing assorted issues to pass around like you did, and then I was just like, but do I really want to deal with TSA? That was the calculus. It's like, if I was driving, absolutely. But I'm like, I just know if I stick this in my bag, I'm going to get stopped. And they're going to be like, please explain this, sir. So, quick anecdote about TSA. Uh-huh. I brought a whole bunch of Stickers for Sex Love Lit for the podcast that I do. And they were flagged by TSA because they could not penetrate my SLL stickers with the scanner. So the guy went and pulled them out and kind of looked at them and like smiled. I was like, oh, it was my stickers that set off the yeah. scanner. Good to know. Have you seen that TikTok video of the one girl going through the TSA and like they, they flag something and the dude opens it and it's like this giant dildo and he closes it and like looks at the girl. Yeah. <laughs> like smile. Like girl. So your situation could have been so much. Oh, it could have been right, but, but, a but giant like, purple dildo. But that right. was but, <laughs> mean. <laughs> but that was literally the decision. Like I was just like, um, and I knew I was going to like. I wasn't checking the bag. I was, uh, or it, it ended up getting being checked because they ran out of overhead space. But mm-hmm. like, I was. My intention was to just like go through the checkpoint. I'm traveling alone, and I'm only here for three days. So I was like, no problem. And then I was just like. Ah. Do I want to just like I knew in my head that I'd just be standing there in line trying to explain superhero porn and then be like and then like it was going to be like, no, but you don't understand. I'm going to a conference and this is my job. (laughs) 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 There have been worse jobs. Yeah, but but like no one's going to believe that. It's like, oh, it's it's for work. I have a very important I'm a doctor. (laughs) I have a very important job that I am going to San Antonio to Talk about, you know, this image where, you know, there's this superhero with huge boobs having sex with this skull-headed supervillain. In order to resolve their differences. In, in order, yes. <laughs> so, can I say, one, yeah. I wish you would have brought the books because I wanted to see... Okay, this is going to sound like a lot, but I wanted to see that sequence in more detail to see how it was actually resolved. I do have a PDF of it on my oh, iPad. Because you're talking about the fact that they were, like, having a... We can cuss all this because they yeah. say it. The swear. They were having, like, a fuck war. Yeah. And it's like, how do you win? Um, what is the end? In... in, in <laughs> Basically, she kegels his penis hard enough that he gives in. I thought that was... Yeah. <laughs> like, that's it. Like, she's, like, interrogating him, like, or whatever she said. Yeah. Who do you work for? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's, that, yeah, that's me. Yeah, basically, she squeezes and he taps out. Because, oh, so it was a wrestling kind of... Yeah, okay. that's that's how that seri- that sequence ends. But, yeah, he, he but she's... That's... It's they have sex to resolve their differences. And it's like, and it's, oh, I didn't show the part in between. So when she it goes to the lair 
He's like, okay, I'll, you know, we're going to, you know, she's like, I'll tell you, but only if you can outsex me. And she's like, well, how do I know you're really going to sell me? And again, I just didn't make the talk because I wanted to, I mentioned the consent stuff a little bit, but then I ended up going in a different direction with it. They draw up a legal contract. It's like a whole thing. <laughs> they're like, and they're, it's like, not like, cause it's, it's very much not a rape. She's mm-hmm. like, all right, fine. We've got an agreement here and they get their lawyers involved and they sit there and they have, and there's a whole scene where they sit there and they draw up this legal contract agreeing that, you know, between a supervillain and a superhero, agreeing that they're going to have sex for the purposes of this thing, and then they air it on pay-per-view. And it's like a whole thing. It's amazing. That's so fascinating. <laughs> yeah. And I, which is why we, I mean, like, I, I just, I was like, I really want to talk about this book for this conference. It's so weird because you only get 15 minutes, and I don't even mention it. Like, again, I'll, I'll play it next, but yeah. I don't even mention that part in the talk. The contract, but it's absolutely amazing. And then there's a, and I did hint at the fact that, you know, it's not gender specific or, mm-hmm. or sexuality mm-hmm. specific because each of their lawyers, they both have female lawyers. And while they're doing that, you see their lawyers are also hooking up. Like they're, they, their lawyers both happen to be lesbians. So then they hook up as well in the second scene, which I do feel like could lend itself to accusations of like, you know, penthouse and the male gaze. But I'm glad you brought up that they're also like bisexual men in the case. Yes, right. Sort of offsets that. A little bit. It's, I mean, it very, I mean, I'm not going to oversell it. It's a, it's for dudes. It's yeah. a, it's very, it is very much a male gazy book. It is not, they do not, I mean, there are, I'm sure women who read it. That was not his intent. He did not care. It's very much trying to do, but. But it very, but it did also try to do some really interesting things. Like maybe I'll talk about Scion next year, which is the one where they have like gender switching characters and who, you know, who like, I mean, they don't know that it's 1994. They don't have the word non-binary. Right. But right. like there's or characters. Gender fluid. Or whatever. Yeah. There, there's characters who are just male sometimes and female other mm-hmm. times. And they deal with that. And it's done for kink reasons. But that's how exploration works in fiction. So, so we're already thinking about Eros next year. I mean, I feel like I, I guess I'm lucky enough because I can always do Eros stuff, and then I, you know, it's not like it's not like I can't just sit on a round table for comics whenever I want to. Like, like, like. So, longtime guests John Dorowski and Nicole Frame are the chairs, and they've been on the show many times. So our listeners know who they are, and they'll find something for me to do. It's fine. I could if I had enough. Uh, submissions for arrows to where I had like four comic submissions. I would just do a joint panel, which, which cause PCA wants to do more of those. So I'd like that, but we'll see. I think I'm hoping next year's Chicago and I'm hoping there's more people. All right. So I think Matt, we didn't record yours. <laughs> but, uh, it's okay. <laughs> <laughs> you had a good talk. I liked it. You can read it. Read it. It's going to be a longer a chapter. Version, but it's going to be a chapter in a Witcher and philosophy book from oh. Wiley Blackwell. So Wait, can we get a preview though? Because I wasn't at your panel and now I'm very curious. <laughs> yeah, sure. Well, as I told the panel, you know, the book itself was, or the chapter paper was called, I think the title is, Sometimes you have to pick sides, a Iberian critique of Geralt of Rivia's apoliticism. And so Reinhold Niebuhr is a 20th century thinker. He's sort of a mixture of theology, philosophy, social critique. He's influenced Jimmy Carter, Martin Luther King, Barack Obama. Mm. And so, you know, it was 
gave the preface that one of the things that informed this paper was sort of my own background being raised in sort of fundamentalist evangelicalism. You know, when George W. Bush was elected, it was like, this is the evangelical guy who will turn everyone back to, turn America back to God. Okay. And bring honor back to the White House. <laughs> Which is really funny now because with the evangelical embrace of Trump, all those mm-hmm. reasons for electing George W. Bush were kind of thrown out the window where it was like, well, yeah, he's a terrible person, but sometimes God uses terrible people. And so it's just funny how... Interesting. Uh, how partisan, it, how evangelicals become so partisan that they go back on their own lot. You massage the message. <laughs> yeah. Because I remember like these youth pastors and youth leaders at these national conferences. One guy named Ron Bruce would do these massive conferences back mm-hmm. in the day. And he went on the stock, you know, as if President Clinton would ever like see a recorded message from him. It was like, you know, Mr. <laughs> President, you've corrupted a whole generation who are not asking what is oral sex. You know, because of your actions. And I'm like, you know Trump said grab him by the pussy. Yeah, like, right. Like, and evangelicals aren't, like, they're not doing what they did to Clinton in the 90s. Just, I would like to thank Bill Clinton for inventing oral sex. Oh, yes. Yeah. <laughs> not to give too much information, but I have utilized his work. <laughs> <laughs> Apparently. That was so weird when people would say stuff like that. Like, oh, no one was ever thinking about this before he, I'm like, I was alive. Yeah. I assure you. <laughs> yeah, those of us who remember are able to highlight the hypocrisy of like, like I remember what was being said about George W. Bush uh-huh. and the reason, and I think at a personal level, he's probably a nice guy, but like policy wise, like, like I'm not a big fan for the, I mean, I liked Pep Ford and things like that, but like the thing that kind of turned me I like off. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I'm glad he has this hobby. Um, <laughs> yeah. You know, during the Iraq war, especially, you know, watching the Daily Show and other things, like, you began to see the hypocrisy of the denial about how there needed to be a new strategy because soldiers are dying, Iraqis are dying, how there weren't any weapons of mass destruction and how, like, there wasn't just that honest acknowledgement of it and people's patriotism was called into question. So I began mm-hmm. to get disillusioned by the Republican Party. And while I didn't lose my faith, I definitely lost my the political allegiance that tied to it. Mm-hmm. But what I ended up adopting was a position of pacifism specifically from certain threads of Anabaptism, which is a pacifist tradition. You know, it's most notably seen in groups like the Amish, which are, I mean, not every group of Anabaptists is Amish. Some of them are just like non-Amish, but they just (laughs) don't vote because they see all politics as corrupt. And I was like, yeah, because we know know why the Democrats suck as well. But with Trump, some of my apoliticism and sort of wanting to critique both sidesism Mm. got called into question because it seemed like enough of an extreme situation between the mishandling of COVID the mishandling of, you know, everything. Black, yeah, <laughs> the way that, you know, there was just this decision. We're not going to believe Black Lives Matter, but we'll believe there was election fraud, even though there's clearly evidence for one and not for the other. And so for me, it was like, okay, this is my Bonhoeffer moment. You know, Bonhoeffer being this theologian in Germany, who was like a pacifist, but was like, we should really kill Hitler. And I'm not for, you know, killing Trump. That's not what I'm saying. But there was this element of like needing to now be involved mm-hmm. in an active mm-hmm. way. Active, yeah. And so, I mean, and you have people on Trump's side who think they're Bonhoeffer and, you know, Eric Metaxas being this one guy who thinks he's the Bonhoeffer supporting mm-hmm. Trump, right? And so, so, you know, especially also reading liberation theology, which is all about the focus on the oppressed, the marginalized, mm. and how pacifism for them isn't, you know, for me, pacifism is a choice. And political apoliticism is a choice for me. For others, 
political involvement is a matter of survival. Right. right. And right. that's a critique that's given at Errol by different people in his life. Tris. I was wondering if you were going to get... Mm-hmm. So I've seen the talk already, and I was like, so he's doing... Like, when you do the talk here at PCA... You went back to The Witcher more often than you just did in the last five minutes. So I was like, I, was getting I know. I was like, I wonder if he's going to actually tie it together. I trusted the process. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So Geralt gets confronted by all these people who are telling him not to, you know, who are telling him he shouldn't be neutral. And, you know, but even his mentor, Vesemir, at the beginning of the third Witcher video game, is like, yeah, Nilfgaard can't win. This imperial power that's pushing the earth as it's moving through the land, taking over. He's like, yeah, they can't win. And Geralt's like, oh, we pick sides now? Which is especially ironic because Vesemir is the one who told him not to pick sides. So as he goes through, you know, I sort of talked about Geralt's moral strictness. There's this famous story from the first Witcher book called The Lesser Evil, where he tells this one wizard who, well, oh, it's not important. You can go read the story. It's also the first Netflix episode that, you know, you there is no lesser evil. There's only evil. He won't choose if he has to choose a lesser evil. And I said in politics, like Niebuhr's point would be, Politics always incorporates some injustice into its justice because the moral purity that you might be able to attain at the individual level, maybe, uh, can't go into the collective life where you're managing a lot of selfish egos. Mm. And that doesn't mean that there can't be progress. It's just that progress will always be accompanied by some sort of new problem to Mm -hmm. deal with. And so dealing with Geralt's, you know, cynicism of of politics because he desires moral purity and how that's not really fair. Right. Especially, and then I switched and talked about how, at a practical level, some po- people's lives really depend on your political activity, their own political activity, and adopting this moral purity regarding politics is a privileged point of view because for others it's a matter of survival. In the case of Anabaptism, you know, a lot of white Anabaptists in particular, you know, will advocate not voting. But does that translate into black communities where the vote's already being disenfranchised? Right. Mm-hmm. Stuff, you know, it's either like Malcolm X said, the ballot or the bullet. That's all they have left. And so you're taking that from them if you advocate Anabaptist theology as this sort of ultimate truth. Mm-hmm. And so I ended by saying that, like, for Niebuhr, you can expect progress, but there's a character in The Witcher book who compares it to, like, a, a herd of pigs. Yes, progress is like having pigs. Good things come from having pigs. There's bacon, there's sausage, but there's also tons of shit in the yard. Yep. Yeah. But progress can happen. But there will always be evil and we'll always need witchers to fight. It was sort of how I ended up. Right. Like, like it's something aspirational and like because of the reality for Niebuhr of sin in the world, right? The egoism of humanity, there's always going to be shit in the yard. But because for Niebuhr, humans are made in the image of God, they're also capable of self-transcendence. Mm. So there's always, the, I don't want to call it a duality necessarily, but there's there are always these ambiguous parts of humanity that need, cause us to need to be realistic about political involvement. And that's why Niebuhr's a Christian realist. But Niebuhr was also very clear about the need to advocate for the marginalized. And he was very big into workers' rights and labor mm. movements mm. while recognizing some of the movements to attain better labor rights like, you know, Bolshevism or something, like, became tyrannical, and that's not good. But he also said we can't just equivocate between two bad things and act like one isn't worse or better. Like, like British imperialism is not as bad as Hitlerism. 
Yeah. Right. But once Hitlerism's gone, you need to focus yeah. on Britain. right. Yeah. Right. Like, does are there things about Joe Biden that are problematic? Yeah. Yes. Most of them. But if I, but you know, if the choices between Biden and Trump, like, I'm, oh yeah, I'm right. going to Biden again. Like, right. I just think Trump's an existential yeah. threat to the fabric of democracy in this country. Yeah. And I don't think Biden is the normal type of terrible. Yes, that's fair. And. But, you know, Angela Davis can hold her nose and vote for Biden, so can I. Right. Doesn't I mean you don't critique it, but... Right. Yeah. Yeah. My, my big fear, I don't want to downer the entire podcast, we're going to talk about sex in a minute, I promise. Return uh, sex. Get back <laughs> to the too much. But, like, back yeah. To sex. No, well, no, but I mean, I think, that, I think that your talk was good because I thought you did a good job of making that point of there... To be completely apolitical is to be political. And mm -hmm. that is... there's a, It's impossible to do. It's an impossible thing to escape. You know, people always get mad at me. Like, I... I think Trump's going to be president again. No! Yeah. Sorry. But, like, I thought Trump was... Like, so, if you go back far enough, like, in my Facebook and blog, people were mad at me because I, I thought when Trump descended down to the elevator from the heavens, I looked at it and I was like, oh my God, he's going to win. And I said that and people were like, no, that doesn't make sense. And I was like, no. I'm, and I was like, how do you know? And I was like, I'm doing the math. I'm playing the thought experiment in my head. And like, you can't tell the future. And I'm like, but I can. I'm a cultural theorist. And I'm just like going through everything that needs to happen. And I was like, and I didn't know. I was like, he's, and I was like, there are, and I literally was at the time, I was like, Trump's throwing his head into the ring. That means there are, and I think if, if I remember correctly, it's like there are seven viable Republican candidates. It ended up going much higher, but at the mm -hmm. time I think it was like seven. And I was like, so that means in order to get the Republican nomination, since the winner take all system, he only needs to have about 22% of the vote each time. More people than that watch The Apprentice. So he's got it. So he wins the Republican nomination. And then I was like, not playing on the other side. The only person that it will, that it's up against is Hillary. And then three other people. I didn't know Bernie was going to go. It was, was going to happen yet. Mm -hmm. Like Bernie, it, I knew Bernie might run, but I didn't know he was going to run. And I thought the problem's going to be that Bernie's not really a Democrat. So that's going to turn people off. I like Bernie, but that, but like being liked by me is not necessarily good for your political future because I'm weird. So like, like, so like, you know, I'm like, so Bernie's not interested. So, okay. so I was like, so Hillary has to take the Democratic nomination. So now we're running Hillary, a person who the Republican Party has made the boogeyman for the last 20 years. Yeah. She like, and so, and I, and I, so like I basically did this over the course of an hour and then I was like, okay, yeah, Trump's going to be president. And people were mad at me. They're like, don't even say that. It's not funny. You know, he'll be, he'll flame out. I'm like, no, I'm not, I'm, I'm warning you. And my point through all of it was, you know, was no, I'm saying this because I don't like voting for centrist Democrats. I don't like Joe Biden. I don't. Joe Biden, <laughs> actual critical race theory, not the thing that the Republicans call critical race theory. In actual critical race theory, Joe Biden is the bad guy. Yeah. <laughs> like, he is named in many, many a paper of someone who did a lot of existential harm to black people in America. But the choice was the guy who wanted to overthrow the government. And that's why I voted for And that's why I voted for Biden. And I was afraid. I was like, oh, God, you're putting me in a position where I'm going to have to vote for people like Joe Biden in order to stop this crazy person. Yep. And now my fear is, and this is my, my very real fear, is I need Trump to win the Republican nomination because the alternative is, is DeSantis. Is and, DeSantis? He's, oh, and he's worse. Yeah. Mm. And he's worse. He's, he just is. And people, oh, he couldn't be worse. Yes, yes, he, he can. Oh, he can yes. be worse. I'm a political junkie. If you're listening to the show, he can be worse. 
So please. I mean, just like, look at what's going on in Florida. Yeah. And it's, it's like Trump, if Trump wins and Trump beats Biden, then we have a megalomaniacal narcissist who's only out for himself in the White House. And we've done that before. So I know how to do it. <laughs> like, I don't want it, <laughs> but like he'll hurt the country. People will die. DeSantis is literally trying to outlaw my job. Yeah. Like, and like, and that's the least of his problems. Mm -hmm. He's trying to kill people that I care about. There's so much, mm -hmm. it, it's like, it's so insane to where I'm like, okay, so he's the bigger existential threat. And the point of all of this is no one's even remotely caring about any issues I actually care about. Mm -hmm. I would mm -hmm. love it if we could have a conversation about, you know, guaranteeing voting rights for black people, but we can't because no. the choices are people who want to literally end the nation. So, so that's all to say that I think that your talk was important because it's really easy to sort of miss those things mm -hmm. or when, you know, it's a whole, oh, well, until they came for me kind of <laughs> kind right. of thing. And I think that's ultimately what you were arguing, but, you know, smartly. <laughs> like if Jeb Bush was running, like if Jeb Bush had run in 2016, like if he had won, which yeah. he wasn't going to because people were tired of the Bushes. Yeah. But if he had won, like it would have sort of been like, it was a contest between Hillary. Yeah. Like, yeah. <laughs> the Bush-Clinton alliance, right? Like, uh, like, you know, hold your nose oh. and make a choice. <laughs> My dream before Trump went in was like, okay, if Hillary wins... And Jeb can win the next time. And then, oh my God, if we could get to just far enough for Chelsea to be old enough. Because uh, I was like, there, there's a, and then Jenna, and it's like, it could, it could, it, I was like, it could realistically be Bush Clinton, Bush Clinton, Bush Clinton, Bush Clinton. It should be a dynasty that just went for like a hundred years. That, that's two families. that your dream? No, that was my not dream like I wanted. That's what I was just like theorizing. Like, wow. I was like, that was like, I was like, that would be interesting and bad for everybody. And then Trump happened. I was like, oh, God, that would have been so much better. <laughs> <laughs> like, if we could have had the Bush dynasty, like, and not be in the world, the, you know, that, like, like, now I'm like, that's the better timeline. <laughs> would have been the, you know, the one little break for, oh, we had Obama, this little cultural anomaly. <laughs> when there was this black guy for some reason for eight years, and then we went back to our Bush Clinton, Bush Clinton, Bush Clinton. <laughs> like, I would have been like, oh, okay. And like, in that timeline, there's a me existing going, this is horrible. Nothing could be worse than this. Because <laughs> that person didn't live through the Trump years. And like, so now I, I have lived through the Trump years, and I'm like, Okay, thank God there's a possibility of Trump years rather than DeSantis years. I mean, I'd rather it be Biden <laughs> for whatever it's worth. <laughs> you know, but like, yeah, or, you know, maybe someone good. We could think for someone good. But anyway, that's my political moment. Well, thank you for sharing your paper because <laughs> yeah, that was very insightful. That was pretty good off the top of your head. Without yeah. He doesn't even have his notes here. So. That was great. I feel like I should. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I feel like I'm a, because I, I, I feel like I could just fly off on like a political thing. Like, because the other parts of Trump, like, you know, emboldening white supremacists, throwing out all decorum. Mm -hmm. I mean, same one about Jeb Bush. At least the Bushes had, like, a, you know, for Republicans, had a somewhat compassionate plan for immigration. Like, remember Bush's, like, immigration plan that Republicans tanked? Yeah. And the <laughs> Democrats were full? You know, but that's because Jeb Bush has married a yeah. Latina woman, and so now there's more, like, you know... There's compassion from yeah. that side, yeah. It's literally personal. It's like when Dick Cheney became kind of okay with gay people when oh, his yeah, daughter came out. Yeah. <laughs> and, like, his 
Other daughter, not so much. She just really doesn't talk about it that much because she's a very strict conservative. Like hmm. Liz Cheney that everyone loves. Liz Cheney, by the way, not a good person. Liz Cheney yeah. is evil. She just happens to hate Trump. Mostly she hates Trump because he's not conservative enough. Like people don't understand that because she's because she's because she's she mostly hates Trump because he's not conservative and because of the insurrection. It's like literally those things. She is not on your side. Did you ever see that SNL sketch of like Republican or not? And they have all these people like I think who's the guy that plays Simi Lou? Yeah, yeah. He was on it. He was like one of the contestants. And you have like these people coming out who are like, I hate Facebook, and they're like, Why? It's like I, I did love, see that skit. that's good. I love Dave Chappelle. Starting when, <laughs> and then and it's like they keep on having to guess, and like then they have like Cecily Strong comes out as Liz Cheney, and she's like, "My name is Liz Cheney," and they're like, "I don't know." She's like, "I'm a Republican," and they're like, "There, she's a Republican. She has to be a Republican." And he's like, "No, no she not, thinks she is. <laughs> not not going to happen." They've told her no. <laughs> so yeah, becoming a, you know, I don't think you can expect perfect utopian choices. I don't think you can, and this is what Republicans and people on the right don't get about people on the left. They self-critique. Cornell West will self will critique. I mean, he critiqued Obama. You know what I mean? Like, you know, you have these critics who will critique people on the left. I don't think the right really critiques themselves. They just want well, to- they do, but they but those people get excommunicated. Well, right. They- <laughs> Cornell West, everybody's like, ah, you know, a lot of people are like get mad at him, but like he's there. Liz Cheney can critique the right, and then she doesn't get to be part of the right anymore. Like yeah. that's because again, she is not liberal. But they just kicked her out because she wasn't. She wouldn't kiss the ring. So mm. that's well. You have like Michelle Alexander, New Jim Crow. It's like you know, a lot of the people she critiques in that book are Democrats. It's Biden. It's the Clintons. It's Obama. And but then when but I don't feel like the right critiques themselves in this equivalent way. No, where, it's, yeah. where it's actually constructive. No, mm. where like Joe Biden will come out and go, yeah, I shouldn't have supported Bussing. Yeah, <laughs> right. Or I should have supported. I shouldn't have supported not, not supporting not, Bussing. Right. Yeah. Or like Clinton will be like, yeah, I shouldn't have said super predator. That's my fault. You don't see people on the right doing that where they go, okay, yeah, maybe I <laughs> fucked up. Yeah, yeah. The, you're right. The election wasn't self. <laughs> so. That said, now I want to make sure you got to hear Matt's paper, or at least a version of it. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to I'm going to do the the, the staticky sound that's going to happen, and then you're going to hear Ayani's paper. Nice. And then the staticky sound will happen again, and you'll hear my paper, or maybe it's the other way around. Depends on which way I decide to do it when I edit it. We'll see. One of those two, and then we'll have another staticky sound, and I'll be back, and I'll wish you goodbye. Hello. <laughs> My name is Christopher Maverick. You can call me Mav. And as you might imagine, the following presentation isn't going to be safe for work. (laughs) That said, this is the Aerosmith Pornography panel. So you probably knew that when you walked through the door. Um, If you didn't, you've made a grave mistake. (laughs) That said, you've been warned. So I now invite you to take a look back at an early era of the incredibly erotic superhero comics of the 1950s and 60s. Okay, probably not exactly what you were expecting. (laughs) We'll get to what you were expecting. (laughs) But for now, what you're looking at here is a highly sexualized erotic display, a completely stereotypical, overly represented, hinged, non-monogamous closed triad between a dominant masculine Superman and his two human female submissives. Just that it's a hidden coded one. But make no mistake, this is Lois and Lana who are hopelessly sexually devoted to Superman as their dom. No matter how badly he treats them, and it, it's 
a shame that they live in a world that does not accept their kink because if they had, then the women might have gotten along better with each other, but they don't. That said, once upon a time, American superheroes were envisioned as a chaste and asexual beings of absolute moral goodness. At least that's according to Robert Jewett and John Sheldon Lawrence in their book on the American monomyth, where they claim that celibacy and sexual renunciation are key features of the American superhero, and that by showing the hero to be above the base carnal needs of the common man, he exhibits a greater heroic strength. I question that this is as universal as Jude and Lawrence claim it is, um, that because while this arg argument works for some heroes, it is somewhat incongruous with others. There are a multitude of reasons for this disconnect between how Jude and Lawrence see the tenets of golden and silver age superheroes and how I do. I'm going to acknowledge a couple of them in passing, but this is a whole big, long hour talk that I'm not going to do here. <laughs> so for the sake of argument, I will acknowledge that that stereotype does exist. In large part, this is intentional, and due to the existence of the Comics Code Authority in response to Frederick Vertham's 1954 book, Seduction of the Innocent, and his testimony in front of the 1954 Senate Subcommittee on Juvenile Delinquency. Again, the details and scope of that are far outside of this talk today. This is a whole class, but it's fairly foundational to comic studies as a field, and this room will be full of people willing to talk to, it about, uh, to you about it in like exactly an hour. So, you know, you can ask any of them, and me, I'll be here, but you know, <laughs> but like, I'm not gonna do it here. So, shortcutting through a lot of it, of, um, I will greatly simplify here and say that there was an intentional attempt in the 1950s to remove smut from comics. As a result, many comics that feature objectable content were essentially banned under the comics code. For example, one of my favorites, the Golden Age comics, Sheena, Queen of the Jungle, featured a Tarzan-esque warrior woman who routinely saved her mate, Bob, and she referred to him as her mate, and his name was Bob, from a, <laughs> from a succession of villains and dangers, and then they would retire to her hut to have sex. It's explicit. They're going to have sex. Bob falls into a pit. Sheena swings down and saves him, and then she takes him to her hut and fucks his brains out. This is almost every issue. It's, <laughs> it is heavily implied that Bob is Sheena's submissive and that their lovemaking is largely about pleasing and servicing her. Yeah. <laughs> it was. But that was entirely too kinky for the CCA. The code made the entire storyline of Sheena forbidden and along with it, essentially any sex-positive female characters, and frankly, most of the male ones. And these roles remained in effect from 1955 until the mid-1990s. Of course, sex never totally disappears from comics. Underground comics took up the mantle, and adult material thrived in the counterculture movement of the 1960s. However, without access to mainstream distribution on newsstands, they remain a niche media. By the 1970s and 80s, magazine-style comics like Vampirella and Heavy Metal published in magazine formats that allowed them to escape the rules established for traditional comic book formats were all over the place. However, the magazine style largely shied away from traditional superhero fantasy that was common in the comic books and veered towards other genres like horror, sci-fi. During that time, superhero comics remained largely formulaic and about spectacle, and targeted at a prepubescent male gaze. These two things combined for a formula. A girl is captured, you rescue the girl, she's your girlfriend now. 
<laughs> even if the, even if the sexual relationship is never consummated on panel, the implication of superhero comics is that it is always present. The sweetheart's value is her sexual de- desirability, which the superhero purchases with his capacity to perform violence. However, under the transactional nature of the Silver Age superhero comic, sexuality has no inherent value in and of itself. It is only useful in its capacity to be traded to someone who can perform violence on your behalf. Effectively, this promotes a kind of what I call super prostitution. (laughs) With the iron hold that the CCA had over comics through its formative years and the inability of comics to present even normative sexuality, frankly, the savior sweetheart for sex trope becomes a normative ideal. Even if the consummation couldn't be explicitly depicted, it was clearly presumed. Lois and Clark have a normative and acceptable version of Sheena and Bob's uh, gender-flipped relationship. Thus, for the entire era of the comics code, it became specific gender roles in relation to sex as a normalization of how superheroes were. This is an idealized superhero relationship from 1955 until 1994. Boom. Penthouse Comics. (laughs) Penthouse Comics seeks to change this. That's its main reason. Okay, it's not its main reason for existing. (laughs) There's other reasons for it existing, but that's one of the things it's trying to exist. Penthouse Comics and its spinoffs, Penthouse Men's Adventure Comics and Penthouse Max, were anthology series that largely attempted to compete with the long-running comic fantasy magazine Heavy Metal, but with much more explicitly pornographic material. It had a very specific audience, the overlap of comic book fans and fans of Penthouse's vision of men's magazines. There was some fantasy content, and in fact, many of the creators were shared between Penthouse and Heavy Metal, including Alfonso Aspiri, who wrote Lorna Leviathan, and Richard Corbin, who wrote Den. If you've seen the 1970s movie Heavy Metal, there's a Den comic in it. Din and Lorna both appear in both Heavy Metal and Penthouse at the same time. However, I would like to focus today on perhaps the most notable of the storylines that ran throughout Penthouse Comics, the shared superhero universe that was introduced in the lead story of the first issue, Young Captain Adventure, and progresses through Hurricane, spelled H-E-R-I-C-A-N-E, Hurricane, Miss Adventure, Dr. Dare, The Team Supreme, Action Figures, Hot Blood, and several others. That's the Team Supreme down there. <laughs> the Penthouse Comics universe is vast, especially for a company that was only publishing for four years. Everything that I'm showing you today from here on out is four-year period. And they really weren't that different from the characters being published at the time by Marvel or DC Comics in 1994, except for like one really obvious thing, which is that they had sex. <laughs> they had lots and lots of sex. <laughs> Like, really a lot. <laughs> like, so much sex. Like, there are sexual encounters that go on for several pages. All these, these last four that I've shown you, they're the same. Like, it's just one encounter that just goes from page to page. I just scanned each page. Um, and then it ends, and then it goes to the next issue. They're still having sex. <laughs> so this happens several times. Sometimes in multiple issues, the same sexual encounter. There's, like, so much sex that you'd, be, you'd think it was being published by the writers of Penthouse Forum which it was. <laughs> so, um, sex and Penthouse Comics has two purposes. The first is sexual. It's used for pleasure and pair bonding between willing comp- participants, as it would be in any consensual relationship. Characters are frequently engaged in sexual congress for love or pleasure or simply to alleviate boredom. 
Sex is implied to be a pleasurable activity sought after by participants regardless of gender or sexuality. The second is confrontational. Sex in the PCU can substitute for combat. The mechanics of this are not immediately clear or consistent. Certainly non-consensual sex could be presented and in fact is in some of the non-superhero stories. In many penthouse stories, there are troubling rape fantasies. However, they're actually rare in the PCU. Instead, sex occurs between enemies on multiple occasions as a kind of competition where superhumans will compete to sort of outsex each other. <laughs> like this. <laughs> um, <laughs> in this world, two superhuman characters might settle a conflict by having the most spectacular sexual encounter possible, and in effect, the spectacle of sex substitutes for the spectacle of violence that is common to superhero comics. Thus, the sex of the PCU is directly valuable. Instead of super prostitution, sex is of value, much like a dance battle in a musical. <laughs> sex in the PCU is a conflict that can be won, unlike the standardized violence power or coincident sexual power of super prostitution that was normalized within the standard superhero monoma. Sexual power of the PCU does not seem to be gendered. Male characters and female characters seem equally capable of wielding it and equally desirable of its use. By 1998, four years after it premieres, Penthouse Comics ceases publication. In truth, most of the PCU storylines had gone sp been sparse ever since the suicide of the creator and publisher George Carrigan in 1995. With the fall of the PCU, the idea of sex as an active competition kind of ceased. However, I would argue that it is at least coincident with and likely partially responsible for the revised outlook, uh, the possibilities of sexuality within mainstream superhero characters ever since. In the 1990s, after this, there's an extreme tradition of comics with hypersexual excess. However, it was a visual trope that coded on presumed sexuality because of spectacle or sexual confidence of hard-boiled superheroines like Witchblade. But it was still just coding. The PCU allowed for this possibility of sex for its own sake, a tradition that continues, though slightly less explicitly, in the comics today with celebrity superhero characters like The Authority, The Ultimate, Savage Dragon, and perhaps most notably, The Boys, where the primary superhero team, The Seven, is essentially indistinguishable from the PCU's Team Supreme. For the most part, these comics are nowhere near as sexually explicit as the PCU, though in recent years, Savage Dragon has edged ever closer. <laughs> However, it should be noted that the expansion of explicit sexual representation is exceedingly common in the world of fanfic, a world quickly gaining normalization. The fanfic work of Tracy Scops is essentially an extension of the work of Penthouse Comics 30 years into the future, or our present. However, I would argue that the current superhero mainstream in regards to sexuality matches much closer to the PCU than it does to the mid-90s Marvel comics, such as Onslaught or Heroes Reborn. The X-Men Krakoa Age may not have been written by Tracy Scott, but the symbiotic influence of a world where Jean Grey is allowed to be ethically non-monogamously linked to both Wolverine and Cyclops is clear in the books. Penthouse Comics may not be the future, but it is the asymptote that we are approaching. Thank you. <laughs> I yield the balance of my time. <laughs> 
time. I'm going to take this time to restart my computer. <laughs> um, and I'll give y'all a super quick introduction to who I am. So hi, hello, my name is Ayani Cooper. I'm super excited to be here. This is my first PCA, and it's actually my first in-person presentation in a really long time, and my first presentation since graduating from my PhD program. So a lot of firsts happening all right here, all right now, for all of you. Uh, okay, so we live in a time of sexy monsters, exploring erotic monstrosity in contemporary visual media. Through the project, I look at erotic monstrosity, which I describe as amorous, explicit, and or sexually charged representations of imaginary monsters. Monsters, to quote me, with their fictional, fantastic bodies organically mesh with the fantasy of eroticism and open possibilities inaccessible from our physical realities. Building on and expanding existing conversations of monsters in romance and erotic pose, I focus on erotic monstrosity in a variety of visual genres, including comics, animation, and mobile games, with my ultimate goal being to investigate how contemporary storytellers, especially of marginalized identities, use images in conjunction with other communicative modes to represent, complicate, embrace, and cultivate desire through the bodies of monsters. So at the end of the day, this project unfurled over three body chapters, three podcast episodes, and approximately a bajillion footnotes, of which 50% were jokes. Uh, and while I'd be more happy to talk about other parts of my dissertation during the Q&A, today I'm going to spend time looking at the independent one-shot comic called Hot Day by cartoonist Aime Sotio. So as a Content warning, which maybe you don't need, but this presentation uh, does a lot of close reading of explicit images. So if you are not interested in seeing penises the size of this screen, then perhaps this is not the presentation for you, though I hope you stay. And also I swapped out some of the more formal scientific terms for the body with more informal colloquialisms just for the ease of conversation. So, crowdfunded on Kickstarter in 2019, Sotio created Hot Day as an erotic side story for her long-form dark fantasy webcomic, Undivine. The short follows Undivine's deuteragonist protagonist, Daniel, on our left here, right? No, on our right. Uh, <laughs> a high school senior who, quote, figured freeing a demon at the expense of his soul was a good idea, and thereafter slowly begins transforming into a monster himself. And Esther, the said demon, who often takes the form of a six-foot-tall, busty blonde woman. Using the same setting as the original story, a Catholic-esque boarding school on the fictional Caribbean island of Santigüe, Sotio considers Hot Day a quote-unquote canon spin-off to the main narrative, suggesting it could take place sometime after Chapter 8. Though she planned to include erotic elements in upcoming chapters of Undivine, the comic was on hiatus for over a year, just picking back up in June of 2022 through her Patreon. Interestingly, this makes Hot Day the only canonical exploration of Daniel and Esther's sexual relationship. Sotio structures Hot Day across two major sections. I also have it here if anyone's curious. The first featuring Esther and Daniel's futile attempts to cool down in their shared bedroom, However, as shirts come off, Esther gets riled up and starts a situation where the erotic possibilities of monstrous anatomy can take center stage. The second section takes place in the boys' locker room, where Daniel goes to shower in another effort to beat the proverbial heat. Not to be outdone or denied, Esther transforms from her usual body to that of a cisgendered man to follow Daniel into the locker room. The two continue their sexual escapades inside a small shower stall flanked by steam and oblivious background characters. 
And at the very end, there's a short sequence that wraps up the narrative, showing the characters teasing each other and sharing a kiss outside. In the full chapter, I explore how Sotio uses a bisected narrative structure and various erotic comic literacies to queer the stereotypical male-female or MF pairing in pornography and plays with readers' expectation of an MF erotic experience. So to start, the cartoonist gives Esther a monstrous figurative penis in the narrative's first half, though she does gain a human one after her transformation. Next, and this is more kind of where my presentation begins today, Sotio creates parody through narr uh, both narrative halves by employing similar imagery and pornographic tactics, ultimately creating a unified experience for the characters and readers. And finally, to finish the presentation off, I consider Sotio's decision to have Daniel enact two different gendered orgasm motifs. So as a note, uh, transformation does provide a fruitful area to complicate and explore representations of gender identity while remaining wary of gender essentialism. While this is not the main focus of my analysis, discussing Esther necessitates understanding that her gender expression and physical form are fluid. Uh, I think in the previous slide it did note that she is gender fluid. Sotio depicts Esther in multiple bodies in both narratives, human and otherwise. That said, Esther does consistently use she, her pronouns, regardless of her chosen form, and as such, I will follow suit in my analysis. Also, also, also. <laughs> the full chapter does spend a lot of time with analysis, consideration, and critiques of boys' love, erotic boys' love, and tentacle porn stories, and you'll hear shades of that here as I go through. All right. <laughs> in the list of erotic tropes Sotio lists for her Kickstarter, she gestures to the bisected construction of Hot Day by gesturing to FM and MM pairings. While it might be tempting to view the two major sections of the comic as separate, the cartoonist designed Hot Day as a holistic erotic experience, and we can see this in part through her use of visual and narrative parallels. Using the ero manga or erotic manga technique known as Seikyo Damenzu and gendered orgasm tropes, she unites both parts of the comic as one queer erotic project. Dagmar Van Egan argues in How to Fuck a Kraken, Cephalopoid Sexualities and Non-Binary Genders in Ebook Erotica that, quote, a tentacle is not a penis. Instead, they contend that, when used in a feminist erotic context, tentacle monsters offer a fantasy of pleasure unanchored to the constraints of human bodies or heteronormative realistic porn. Similarly, Susanna Passonen's work on tentacle porn leans on Susan Napier's distinction between enormous penises and phallic tentacles, though for me, phallic is the operative word there. That said, I believe this becomes more of a both-and situation when we consider Esther. She is frequently drawn using her tongue like a tongue. In moments when Esther is licking Daniel or otherwise drawing attention to her mouth, Sotio depicts her tongue as slick with saliva. And, as a monstrous tongue, it contorts and squirms in distinctly non-human ways, unanchored, as it were, to our, visual, our physical constraints or realism. On the other hand, Sotio specifically employs Seikyo Damanzu on panel 4 of page 11 to equate Esther's tongue with her own soon-to-be-revealed penis. Seikyo Damanzu is a cross-sectional illustration of sexual penetration which, according to Christine Santos, performs a specific function in pornographic comics. 
These illustrations of sexual intercourse, particularly the act of sexual penetration or ejaculation, are magnetic resonant imaging like images of the sexual act. Say that three times fast. No. <laughs> right? <laughs> a staple in Aromanga, artists use this technique to clearly illustrate the internal dimensions of the penetrative act or ejaculation. In the process, Aromanga readers have a clear visual understanding of the tightness of a woman's vagina or the girth of a man's penis. Sotio modifies this practice for Esther's tongue, depicting it like a shadow-like presence. A faithful cross-section could have proven more disturbing than arousing, but the cartoonist's intention is clear. To quote, illustrate the internal dimensions of the penetrative act and provide a clearer visual understanding of Esther's girth. Though a shadow, readers can see both how Esther's tongue swivels down Daniel's throat how much space it takes up, and how far down the tip reaches. Sotio then echoes this use of Seiko Damenzu on page 26, when Esther and Daniel are having anal sex. All right, it's coming, y'all. <laughs> Boom. The cartoonist uses this technique to likewise highlight both the size of Esther's penis and Daniel's tightness. Small flesh-colored spikes jut up from Esther's head to signal contact between it and Daniel. Uneven marks, similar to both scopic stars and almost like seismograph readings, adorn the space around the bulging, exaggerated portions of her penis, accentuating both the shock of the impact, but also friction with Daniel's internal walls. Sotio eschews the coyness of the first section's shadows, instead keeping Esther's dick detailed, from bubbles of lubrication around the base to protruding veins. In this way, the sequence more faithfully reflects standard uses of Seiko Damenzu. And by creating a moment of parody between both halves, our cartoonist connects the characters and the actions from both sexual situations. Sotio also uses Daniel to play with gendered pornographic expectations and connect both sections of the story. In the MF portion, Sotio concludes the sexual action with a money shot, a long-standing porn trope popularized by the film Deep Throat, that focuses on an ejaculating penis to sing signal the end of a sequence. Money shots function as, quote, a substitute for what cannot be seen, similar to Seikyo Damenzu, making an often internal process visual for scopophilic pleasure. Money shots frequently consist of penis close-ups, as well as male performers ejaculating on a female performer's body. Sotio breaks Daniel's ejaculation sequence over three panels, starting with the final panel on page 11. She starts with this close-up image, angling Daniel's penis diagonally across the panel that runs the width of the page. Esther continues to jack Daniel off, the rapidity of her motions accentuated by speed lines and motion blurring on her fingers. Like the earlier panels on the page and the anal sex scene, Sotio relies on pointed, uneven spark marks to express the jolting, even surprising sense of orgasm, as well as the jerking motions of Daniel's penis. Interestingly, though, she does choose kind of like a stark white background here for the image, which obscures Daniel's semen. I don't even know if you guys can see it. Mm -hmm. um, <laughs> <laughs> and Esther's hand more the focus of the image. However, as with her use of Seikyo Damenzu, Sotio remixes the money shot in the next two panels. Using the page turn as a transition, she pulls back to show Esther and Daniel from the knees up. Rather than on Esther, Daniel climaxes on his own stomach. And by breaking this typical element of the money shot, Sotio avoids any unfortunate implications created in a moment of questionable consent. 
While Esther tries to use the orgasm to keep the momentum going, licking in another panel what appears to be semen off of her fingers, Daniel literally nopes out of the situation, complaining that it's just too hot for all that. In crafting the second sequence, Soto uses another popular Aromanga literacy that would likely be familiar to the audience, the ahegao, a visual expression used to highlight a hyper-intense orgasm through clear visual elements. Santos and Aromanga scholar Kimirito pinpoint three key elements of ahegao that make the expression highly recognizable. First, the whites of the eyes are visible or are close to becoming visible. Second, a wide open mouth with tongue visible or hanging out. And third, the presence of bodily fluids. While all these features need not be present to make an ahegao, Rito notes, quote, the strength of each individual factor helps raise that of the ahegaos. Through the combination of these factors, ahegao, quote, showcase how a character's sexual experience is so intense that she loses control of her expression. And if not clear from the, quote's use of she, Rito and Santos distinctly note that the ahegao are generally reserved for female characters. However, both researchers also point to the technique's most recent appearance in BL and Aero BL stories, or boys love and Aero boys love stories. As a part of her story, Sotio draws Daniel with an ahegao and a money shot to end the second sequence, uniting habitually gendered tropes in one figure. So the cartoonist positions pages 28 and 29 as the climax to the literally and figuratively steamy shower love scene, brimming with claws and fangs promised in the Kickstarter. The bottom half of the page displays Daniel from thighs up, again on a diagonal, with Esther's torso, butt, and hands visible on the right side of the panel. Slightly different from the earlier sequence, Daniel's body here is the main piece of the image that becomes the erotic spectacle, quote, openly exposed to the gaze of the reader. Sotio relegates Esther instead to the sidelines of the panel, akin to the, quote, faceless or invisible partner of some illustrated pornography that, according to Catherine Hemmen, allows readers to project him or herself onto the page. Daniel ejaculates in an arc, directing <laughs> attention from his penis to his face. In this panel, Sotio depicts all three elements of a strong ahegao with monstrous flair. Daniel opens his mouth wide, allowing readers to see both his tongue and sharp teeth, he partially covers his mouth with his claws, one finger pointing towards his eyes, with one shut tight and the other looking up in pleasure. And finally, though our cartoonist does not depict sweat or saliva, probably because they are in a flowing shower, she draws an abundance of semen in the panel, both Daniel's and Esther's, drawn as a splashdown near Daniel's bits. Because audiences can see Daniel's penis and his ejaculate, there's less need for Esther to also have a money shot or for Sotio to employ Seikyo Damenzu to show her orgasm. Audiences witness, quote, an involuntary confession of pleasure through Daniel's overt stream of semen, as well as a small external echo from Esther that would remain uncaptured in live action pornography. And finally, a large illustration of Daniel's naked body adorns page 29, acting as a mirror to the ejaculatory ahegao on page 28. Here, Daniel's face is flushed and his eyes are exhausted. A small drip of stylized drool hangs from his lip and, like the previous money shot sequence, semen is on his torso. Esther appears more like a faceless partner again, though her penis is also next to Daniel's. We're also gifted a goofy, blissed-out Esther there in the corner, though that's played more for laughs than for erotic effect. While Daniel's expression may be more in line with what Rito calls the uh, yogarigao, or satisfaction face, the illustration serves a similar purpose to Santos's understanding of the ahegao. 
Daniel loses control of his expressions on pages 28 and 29, showcasing the intensity of his orgasm and the erotic moment. More than just the masculine money shot, Daniel embodies the face of feminized pleasure with the ahego. And that's where I'm going to end. Thank you very much. So I'm back again. So that was our papers. I mean, any final thoughts? Because Matt, you got to see both of us talk. What did, what did you think? <laughs> there was a lot of boobs. <laughs> I thought it was. I thought it was. I thought it was cool. I thought it was an interesting breakdown of what you called the penthouse comics universe. Yeah, the PCU. Yes. The PCU. So I thought some of the dynamics that were interesting, and like, because it's not an area probably a lot of people will know. No, this is like, again, I very much expected. That every image I showed, other I started with pictures of Superman, as you guys heard, and then after that, I'm, I'm like, I know I'm going to get into some hardcore pornography that people are going to like. Who are these people? And is this whole book just people flying and fucking? Yes, <laughs> that, that is the whole book. <laughs> and then with Ayani's thing, what's the comic called again? Hot Summer. Or? Oh, very close. So the comic that I talked about was called Hot Day from Undivine, which is the web comic that it was a spinoff of. Which it. I mean, again, it was very, like, you did a nice breakdown of the different panels and what all the sex symbolism means, what it says about <laughs> things like the male gaze, representations of gender, while also getting into tropes of, like, the sort of, what is basically hente, right? It's like the, the different looks of the, what the orgasm face looks like, usually for a woman, and how it's transposed on this guy, mm -hmm. dealing with the monstrous, like, yeah, it was a very cool technical breakdown of this super pornographic comic. Well, thank you. I mean, it's, it is so fun to, like, work with pornography yep. because I'm just like, yeah, this is, like, every time I'm doing something, I'm like, how is this my actual job? I don't know if I've ever told this story on the show before. There was a point where, and I ended up not doing the paper because I had a theory um, that I was testing and I needed to do some analytic work. I was trying to figure out, I was trying to figure out something about, uh, about the male gaze and acceptance of seeing phalluses versus, versus vaginas oh. in porn. Oh. And I had a theory, and it's not true. I had a theory that uh, about acceptance of what the acceptance would be of versus in straight porn versus gay porn mm -hmm. about genitalia. And I was like, and my thought was that, that you'd have far fewer penises in straight porn mm. than you do in gay porn, excluding lesbian porn as a subset right, of porn. Right. Like, gay porn with men. <laughs> and that was my theory. And I was like, how do I figure this out? I was like, okay, what if I go to Pornhub? And, and I just, I'll, I'll zoom in a lot so I can see it. And I'm going to do the top, I made a list. I had a spreadsheet. I was like, I want the top 10 categories in straight porn, the top 10 categories in gay porn, the top 10 categories in bisexual porn. And I'm going to look at the first 200 thumbnails in each of those categories. And I literally made a spreadsheet and I just like, and I knew, and I numbered them all to like do this chart and I sat there and I was like I'll look at the first thing and I'm just going to count penises and I'm going to count vaginas and I've done the, I, did, I did the vaginas first and then I was doing the penis and went back and was doing the penises and my wife came home <laughs> and she and I'm just sitting in my office going 147 148 149 and, she, and Steph said it says what are you doing she sees she looks over my shoulder and I'm like I'm counting penises 150 <laughs> <laughs> nobody's like stop talking to me 150 but what why are you counting fuck 
<laughs> and she's like, what? And I'm like, two. <laughs> I was counting penises on Pornhub and I've lost my spot. <laughs> Starts one. <laughs> <laughs> and she's like, I'm like, it's work. Leave me alone. <laughs> but I was literally just going through and I was like oh trying to see. God. I was just trying to see if it, but my, my theory was like, you'd probably advertise more with it, but it turns out not so much. It's, it's, um, it's faces that you don't see. Yes. Uh, yeah, uh, faces in straight porn are yep. less frequent. I told you that in one of the comic studies panels, so not even the porn panel, like I was sitting in the back and there's this one guy right in front of me. Yeah. <laughs> and like, I'm sort of sitting there like, like texting my wife or whatever. And, just like, <laughs> and I look up and he's on this like manhunt site, which, you know, if he's you know trying to find love in all the internet places, that's fine. That wasn't my issue. My, my problem was that this is like this pornographic site where there's like, it's like there's a penis and a butt. There's a penis. Yeah. And a butt. Oh boy! <laughs> like looking at it, like just fascinated, like like dude here. Yeah. <laughs> well, that was. Yeah. I mean, and then I think he like kind of got like, wait, is there someone watching me? And he turned around and I like looked down at my phone. <laughs> well, and he like. <laughs> I was in education and pop culture, like no, having to you know having like last minute thoughts for my thing. I was mm-hmm. like, oh, I need to make a tweak. I need to make a tweak. And like I had to make. And I'm like sitting there in the second row and I'm like I hope nobody's looking at my screen because I need to make a tweak to my PowerPoint and like I know that like you said it's a lot of boobs and penises mm-hmm. that, that's what I had and I'm just like oh we just make this edit real quick and then <laughs> close the window yeah. <laughs> you know back row back row back corner yeah yeah, <laughs> yeah. you got a Jason Bourne that yeah, yeah, yeah that's we'll a, see who yeah. but, see but yeah that's always <laughs> well that's always the fear when I'm going to a conference like I'm always afraid to like do editing of anything explicit like on the mm. plane like illegal and I'm, but I'm just like I feel weird yeah. like because because yeah. again like you said I don't know that I'm gonna do the YouTube thing this week uh, this year I, I've done it previously I've put my presentations up for on YouTube but it really is just a lot yeah on, on this one and it's I mean I think that everything that we did has educational value oh for like, sure like definitionally we're educators at an educational conference talking about boobs and penises so like there's value to it but i don't know how to make it youtube safe <laughs> like, like that was sort of the point you would have to go through and put like little sensor bars over everything I did, you put up and I, I would just be in i've previously done it for stuff and i've had like I put the comic code authority symbol over everything <laughs> <laughs> but i don't think i just i think it's too much like my favorite slide of yours is the there's a for lack of a better w- way of saying it, x-ray cutaway of a penis in an anus. Yeah. <laughs> I'm like, and, I, and you showed it, and I'm just like, fucking brilliant. <laughs> absolutely. <laughs> I wanted to applaud. I was just like, oh, absolutely. You should have. I would have felt so great. Like, like, thank I was you. Like, oh. <laughs> yeah, but, but I mean, yeah, not that you do, but like, to the artist, I was yep. just like, I was like, yeah, we're doing anal sex, so we're going to have like, you know, an MRI view of what it be. And I was just like, bravo, sir. Or ma'am. Who, I don't know who ma'am. ma'am. I'm like, yeah, just good job. It's absolutely. I was like, so, so happy. <laughs> this was so perfect. But, oh, gets that. oh, I'm sorry. I was just gonna say, but there's no way that's going on YouTube. No. <laughs> no, there's no way. And there's nothing to show. Like, I can't, like, like the idea of, like, censoring it, there's nothing else in the image. It's not, there's no body. It's just, and then Ioni, like, again, you just heard it. To sit there, it's the point where she's describing, and then there's the beads of, yep, yep. <laughs> of semen and lubrication. And I'm like, and I'm just like, veins. And I'm sitting there watching, like, yep. Oh, this is so good. So good. Because this is the kind of weird nerds that we are. Visual literacy is important. <laughs> but you should put it on Pornhub. <gasps> You're right! Oh my god! 
<laughs> oh my god! Can we do a porn <laughs> joint account for Box Pop and SLL, the Pornhub account, which would be the least viewed Pornhub <laughs> channel? No, remember when there was that guy who did the videos where he was just like, how to treat your wife, and it was just all these really nice videos of like, hey, I'm off the floor for you. That's more clever than that. <laughs> I, I, I think we'd get a lot of views. Oh, okay. consider it. <laughs> you guys get to do fun things with sex. At doing theology, it's like, usually any talk of sex is like, so here's this religious trauma a person might have. <laughs> <laughs> so anyway we're gonna try to enjoy what's left of the conference we got a little bit tomorrow and i'm flying back home i don't know when you guys are heading out tomorrow, tomorrow. tomorrow. yeah so let's see well i'll do matt first matt where can people find out more about you i don't know i've said one or two things on this podcast where i'm like do i want people tracking me <laughs> <laughs> But if you do want to find my stuff, I edit a book series, Theology, Religion, and Pop Culture, from Lexington to Fortress Academic. The hardcovers are way too expensive, so buy paperbacks and Kindles. You can also come to my blog at popularcultureandtheology.com. You can also use another link, andtheology.com, which will be a lot shorter to type out. You can find me on Twitter at popandtheology. And if you have book proposals or you want to contribute blogs, just shoot me an email at popandtheology.gmail.com. And Ayani, I hear you. You are on the internet quite frequently. Yes, I'm on the internet too much, actually. So you can find me personally on Twitter at Ayani Does Stuff, all spelled out. And Ayani is A Y A N I. I'm on Instagram at Ayani Does Things, in which I do stuff and things. And if you want to find my podcast, Sex Love Literature, you can find us on Twitter at Sex Love Lit, Instagram as well, and on all of your favorite podcast platforms. And of course, they're both linked in the show notes. And as always, you can follow me on Twitter or Instagram or Facebook, all the places, always at Chris Maverick. You can follow the show all those same places, except for Instagram, because they're bastards, at Vox Popcast. <laughs> you can follow the show's <laughs> blog at www.voxpopcast.com, where you can find out whatever we're talking about next week. I have no idea what that is, because I've lost track, because I've been dealing with this conference. But it, there's probably a call for comments up, where you can like give us thoughts on some topic. I hope I wasn't supposed to write something. Maybe it was. I mean, it could be by me. It could be Monica or Wayne or Hannah or Katya. I don't know. Go check out the blog and see what's there. And leave us comments on this or any other episode let us know what you think let us know if you have thoughts on oh god i guess on penises and boobs and trump (laughs) (laughs) i mean and the witcher but like (laughs) but it's oh the comments could be very weird on this episode but yeah i really want to know what you think i really do so please leave us comments If you enjoy the show, and we certainly hope you do, then please subscribe to us on iTunes or Stitcher or Spotify or wherever the hell else you get podcasts from. And do us a favor, leave us a five-star review. If you leave us a five-star review, not just a rating, especially on iTunes, Apple Podcasts, that gooses their algorithm, makes us more popular, and really helps us out. I would like to thank Maximilian of Thought for Music for our epic theme song, building ever so more epically and playing us out. I'd like to thank PCA for having us once again. I'd like to thank both of my guests for joining me. I'd like to thank you for listening, and we'll see you next time. Bye. Bye.